Nibbling on sponge cake Watching the sun bake All of those tourists Covered in oil Strumming my six string On my front porch swing Smell those shrimp Hey, they're beginning to boil Wasted away again in Margaritaville Searching for my lost shaker of salt Some people claim that there's a woman to blame But I know it's nobody's fault Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Moore. And going to Margaritaville might become increasingly expensive. Yeah, that's why uh, New Persuasive Words were putting together a secret diplomatic mission. Uh, I volunteered to go deep cover into Mexico and to try to make things right. And if not, bring back uh, cases of tequila, just the stockpile here in the bunker. This is like when Kennedy did the thing with the when he before he did the embargo he like got a bunch of cuban cigars <laughs> so that he would yeah no we should just go straight to joe canals today yeah there we go yeah it's kind of interesting you know uh different at different points different religious groups have stockpiled mormons were stockpiling i remember their mormon friend in high school and they were stockpiling for the end of the world a bunch of fundamentalist christian and survivalist were stockpiling for uh uh, you know, the turning of the millennium. Um, you know, I just, there was, after I started, stop, just wasn't room for food. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, yeah. So I just quit. I just quit at that point. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Sometimes you, you know, stockpiling's a, a, a crazy endeavor. I, I like the William Devane, those gold commercials. Yeah. Hi, I'm Bill Devane. You can get precious metal. <laughs> I, I, that's I also heard that, uh, like, the real rich people from Silicon Valley, there's a bunch of survivalists and they have an exit plan. Uh, I think this was, I don't know, did I hear this on NPR or somewhere, but there's there's this whole cottage industry. Some of them have secret places here in the country and some of them have hideouts in uh, in foreign places. So it, it's interesting. Survivalists can come in all kinds of different forms. You and I are just worried about the tequila supply. The bunker. We have the bunker. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, maybe we could use this to be like, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic, Free radio, free America, right here. Yeah, yeah. Could yeah. start here. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Sponsored by William Devane. <laughs> yeah, that's. What good. do you do with how do you move all that precious metal? If you do wind up being a person that invests in precious metal, how right. do you like? What do you, how do you yeah. stockpile it? Or carry I don't. It? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you could do what some of the people uh, fleeing uh, the siege of Jerusalem did, but that didn't work out too well. They actually swallowed. They would try to swallow their gold and such. And the Romans found that out. And, well, I'll just leave it to your imagination what the Romans did. Even it's not they, pleasant. Even if they didn't find it out. Like, I mean, you better hope you're regular. Yeah, I, I don't. I think that's more roughage than you need. Um, uh, yeah. Gold and silver coins. So, at any rate, well, we'll keep working on these. Uh, our helpful guys are surviving the coming apocalypse. Uh, I think we have to do a little more work. I, I think so far all we have is stockpiling tequila. 
So I don't. I think we have to we have to up our game a little bit. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we. we yeah, I mean, the multiple uses for tequila, I suppose. Medicinal. Medicinal. Yeah. You can either drink it when you're hurt, or drink it before you get hurt, or drink it to get hurt, or drinking drink it while you're getting hurt. Exactly. You so there, there we go. So there. Put. I hope you all been following this down. We will write this down. So the multiple uses of tequila. This is go. for posterity. It is. I feel good. I feel like I'm being a patriot today. Give me an example of an alternative fact. Okay. Uh, there was no Holocaust. Okay, that's an alter- that's an alternative. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, that's um, um, you know, this is today. Today is Holocaust Memorial Day, Remembrance Day, and so it's very important to remember, and not so rem- you know, it's 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 important to remember the horrors and terrors of. Of how um, you know six million Jews and millions of other people were killed by totalitarianism. It's also important to remember how they got to that point. In the most civilized and educated country in the world, arguably in the 20th century, uh, that's where it happened. So uh, you could say, well, maybe we're off the hook because we're none of those things. <laughs> but <laughs> but no, I think it's important to remember how you how you get to totalitarianism. I just well. Uh, I, who was who was talking? Somehow, I, oh, in my sermon, the last person to walk on the moon died last week. Right, 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 right. And uh, you know, I was making a joke. I was talking about something in. in uh, I was in West Texas. I lived there for three years, and I was making a joke. You know, that the people who uh, you know, I just thought the people were absurd who said the moonwalk didn't happen until I was in West Texas, and I realized it looked a lot like the moon. And I was joking, but someone came up to me afterwards and said, "Their boss, the person they work for." was totally convinced that the moonwalk was totally staged. So there, you know, there's an alternative truth that the moonwalk never happened. Yeah, I think if CGI were around back then, there'd be a better case to be made for staging. Pretty hard to stage. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, no. But that, uh, so people have always been open to alternative truth. For instance, you know. By the uh, way, before we move on, can I just say, did you see Rogue One, the Star Wars movie? I did not. What was cool about that is they didn't totally CGI everything. They kind of, it looked like a cool prequel. I mean, I felt like it looked it, it looked like it happened right before the film shot in nineteen seventy nine or seventy. Oh, that was, that's interesting. Yeah, it was good. I mean, the costume, everything like they it was it was, it was very cool. It's yeah. very good. Uh, it's very good film. Well, I think, for instance, you know, America, in many ways, is engaged engaged in one you know exercise in alternative truths for our story of the twentieth century. For instance. No one mentions or no one talks about. I, I bet you, ninety-five percent of our listeners do not know that we killed hundreds of thousands of civilian Filipinos after the Spanish-American War. That we actually fought Filipinos uh, who wanted independence after Fil- the Philippines became a territory. After the, uh, in many ways, a whole war that was based on alternative truth. Uh, for instance, the Maine was not attacked. Uh, they just did actually seven. They did a seventy-year anniversary um the navy did exploration about why the maine blew up in uh in havana harbor and they came to the conclusion that it was some sort of accident that happened on board that they did themselves but that was excuse enough for us to go to war with spain well there you have it so we could go with lots of alternative truths um and I think sometimes those are things we say to make ourselves feel better. I think it uh, if you have an intellectually lazy audience, then I think people forever have been talking about alternative truths. As a matter of fact, um, there were all kinds of alternative truths 
in the second century to try to discredit Christianity. So uh, um, that that this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. Well, let me just say also, our audience is not lazy. You, you are our little listening audience here. Yeah. Got no. a great, great listening audience. Intellectually yeah. engaged. Yes. Yes. And thank you for the shout outs for my song. Absolutely. A yeah. lot of people so, enjoyed it. So that just really encourages me. So there'll be more parodies to come. I like it. So tell me, what? why did you ask me that question about alternative facts? Did I give you enough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like yeah, it's very interesting. Like we're on one level, I think people of both parties, people across the political spectrum are troubled right now. We're a week into a Trump administration. And again, I, just, I say this not as a partisan assessment. I say it's just as people that don't agree on a lot of things across the political spectrum all are rattled by right. some things that are happening right now. Yeah, the, things, the Republican leadership looks rattled. Yeah. Yeah. They also look like they could use a fashion update on that retreat. With <laughs> Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, they just look like like a really like dorky Thanksgiving. Like McConnell's <laughs> the uncle with this. It's like, well, all right, I got to look casual now. So maybe I'll just try a sweater vest and a blue blazer. And my, my denim. I got my dungarees on. <laughs> and Paul Ryan just like, you know, he looks like kind of like the frat guy with like this polo shirt but it's not a very nice polo shirt it's just kind of like it's very uh it's very sartorial some sartorial right. adjustments could help but you know they yeah they they the republican establishment around things like trade or national relations lots of issues are not thrilled and and democrats of course are not thrilled you know with with some things about trump and you have you know like you have republicans looking at you know, now they've got a political opponents and the democrats and maybe one in trump and vice versa democrats with trump and and and, and the republican but they're not exactly the same i mean there's some overlap right. but so I, but i think there's so on one level you probably from either side of the political aisle you could offer critiques as you could with any presidency but the thing i think is disturbing is the the fabrication of stuff right we talked about this in our last podcast and sort of the difference between uh truth lies and bsing right but i think the 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 bsing dimension which is so indifferent to truth or falsehood just because it's spinning narratives all the time right. it's so that 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 becoming a new normal is so deleterious to the human condition uh, no i think i think it it is um and maybe it's important to take a step away from the fire hose <laughs> uh amount of information and stuff happening in Washington to, to to maybe even go a deeper step with this exploration of objectivity. For, for instance, is there objective truth? And, and if there is, um, how can we, how do we access that, access that? And, and how do we know that? Well, this gets back to the Harry Frankfurt book on the truth, where he says part of what tr- truth and become, having a penchant for it, an affinity for it, having a love for it, comes out of realizing that you are circumscribed, that you're finite. And so, so there are things outside you that are real. And right. so individual facts become meaningful as they're part of a whole that's outside you and real and that you're attempting to know. That right. that, no, again, you know a, a reality outside you only as a, as a subject that's invested in the knowing. Right. The only privileged position you have is your own. Exactly. Yeah, you you only you only have you, you can only stand in where you are and right. and interpret reality. But I think that that needn't lead us into a kind of relativistic nihilism. 
And what's interesting is that the you know I think that the kind of uh, fear from traditionalists about the erosion of the truth generally was targeted at the left, right? Marxists or deconstructionists. Right. Now a new form is coming on the kind of new right or the populist right. Now the assaults on objectivity are are coming from the populist right. wing of the right wing in this country. So it's just a very interesting shift in events. Right. Yeah. And maybe part of it is we have to to gain some new or regain some old tools when it comes to even processing what is truth. Um, you always accuse me of wanting to go back to the fourth century, right? I do. All right. I don't want to go back to the fourth century. That's good. I want to go back to the 16th century. That's good. And uh, one of the things that I think the humanist approach to this issue that was part of the Renaissance, okay, and again for uh, most of you have noticed, but it's the same movement, okay? It's the Renaissance if it's south of the Alps. If it's north of the Alps, it was called humanism. So, But it's the same kind of movement. And what's often what you don't get, either in high school or college, is that it was a strongly religious movement. Uh, yes, there was an interest in the classics, but there was even a stronger interest in getting back to the right, you know, the most accurate biblical text as well as you know, regaining the text of the classic Greek and Roman writers, as well as, I mean, it was as much an argument of the right interpretation of Augustine and other of the Church Fathers. And I've mentioned this in the first book, Stephen Tolman, his book Cosmopolis, um, and it's at least 20 years old now, maybe older, but he talks about one of the moves that went from the Renaissance to the beginning of modernity. And, you know, he said that be, before 1600, both the rhetoric and logic were seen as legitimate fields of philosophy, okay? But what happened with the modernity is logic began to trump uh, rhetoric. And so um, we went from a predominantly oral approach to things to almost a consistently written form of things. It's like Aristotle would say, look, you, you don't look from the same, for the same kind of truth from, ma from mathematics that you do from rhetoric. He wasn't a re skeptic about that. He thought that, that there's right. a different kind of truth right. standard for You can't have a univocal standard for all kinds of truth. Yeah, you know, and the same thing happened when it came to uh, to uh, philosophical reference. You know, moral theologians and philosophers before the Renaissance handled, or during the Renaissance, handled moral issues testing case analysis. But part of the move to modernity was the move to more universal truths. I mean, that's part of where we get the idea. I mean, the idea of uh, universal law uh, is a modern concept. And um, then, you know, we also had this idea from moving from the timely to the timeless. In other words, there's a sense of what, what is appropriate now as opposed to what are the eternal truths, or even they're not so much eternal truths with, the, uh, with um, the Enlightenment, but what are these kind of transcendent, uh, mutually held objective points of reference that almost hang out there in the sky by themselves or wherever. Uh, that in part was this project that moved, in many ways, was very confident of what the human could do. Now, some of the early, the early modernist thinkers, the early Enlightenment, these were still people who believed in a transcendent God. They maybe changed aspects of the Christian faith, but they still believed, you know, that there was a divine purpose in all of this, okay? But obviously, as the movement went on, God dropped out of it. And of course, this was, in some levels, you know, what created the postmodern moment, was the failure of this, uh, the ultimate failure, a realization that this project was a failure. But 
I think, let's say Christians, Christians still, most Christians when they talk about these issues are still talking in terms of um, in terms of modernist ways of thinking about it. Even let's say the more progressive who kind of call themselves postmodern, they're still reacting. They're not, they're, they haven't, they're not doing necessarily creative work. They're still re- saying no to some particular verm of, ver- version of objectivity. And so I think that understanding how we got here is, is, part of the, is part of what we need to do. Yeah, Jeff Stout in his book, Ethics After Babel, which is just a great book about some of these issues. He says that, you know, he begins talking about C.S. Lewis and Stanley Harawas. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says there's something like the Tao or natural law. There's these ethical truths. That, and if, if you, we don't acknowledge that there are some universal realities like that, that will become nihilists and skeptics. And Harawas, he says, thinks unless you reject that sort of natural ethical, ethical theological framework that, and, and, and realize that there's only Muslim ethics or feminist ethics or Christian ethics or Buddhist ethics, that you'll become a nihilist because you're looking for this universal moral center that doesn't exist. And, you know, by the way, that's part of what makes Harvoss non-biblical. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's part of it because it's the debates in the scriptures, right? But it, but the, but the, but it's not resolved in the scriptures. Yeah, and Stout sort of says the problem is, you know, I remember Jeff saying something in a graduate seminar. He said, you know, when you're like seven years old, somebody, says, or, you know, parent says your brother or sister says you wrote on the wall. Is that true? You know exactly what your mom or dad means. And he says, you know what? A, a, a couple centuries of analytic, a century of analytic philosophy has not improved on what we know <laughs> when we're seven. But right. you know, one of the things he says, you know, first off. If, if incommensurability is true, like Harawas says, then how do we know we're talking about ethics? Right. Yeah. When, 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 a, when a Muslim says, you know, can we talk about ethics? Why don't you think he's asking you if you know a good plumber? I mean, you kind of know the, the fields of inquiry. The, the, there's enough overlap. But then he says, you know, but the, the, but the universality, the problem is you can't explain it. It's like translation. You know, people get on, the, on these debates about language. Well, is is language really possible translation wise, like word for word and things like that? And the other people, no. Like, well, of course it is. It's just messy, and it's always approximate. And we, anybody that is fluent in a language, uh, and then develops fluency in another, says there's always some things you can't quite say, but they don't think it's incommensurate, no. or else you know it's, it, we wouldn't have such had these like nuances of translation. So part of the problem in lots of human endeavors are things that we can do. And we know are real, but can't account for philosophically. Right, right. And then having to accept that is not always easy. No, I think the other thing, too, is it's funny. Uh, If you did a Venn diagram of all the religions, the one place that there would be overlap is ethics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm studying Buddhism right now. Uh, I'm just needing to learn it. Um, I like that. Yeah. But what strikes me are the points of of contact. You know, now, again, the why, the telos. Is it's yeah. very different, but there's so much common ground, and you know you didn't have talked before. I mean, in some levels, modern history maybe begins. You could argue that it begins in the sixth century BC, and you know almost everything. You go from uh, Greece all the way to China. Almost all the major religious and ethical and philosophical movements that have influenced you know most of the world. Are, are, are happening in parallel. And there's a lot of points of references between all of them in the realm of the ethic. What is the good? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been going back and kind of re, uh, 
re-looking at, I was going to say re-litigating, but I'm not litigating it since. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've been re- reading some stuff in Von Balthasar, have developed a new interest again in Von Balthasar, but you know, he thinks that human experience is, is, is such that when you're born into the world, right, you sense the, the radical contingency that, uh, of it as you develop as a child. Like, everything could not have been, and yet is, and you're, you have this radical contingency. And yet you also have the sense of meaningfulness that you, you, even though you're thrown into existence, he thinks there's this universal kind of human sense of, even though it, it's just as possible that you were never born, you, you, there, you feels like you were made to be born. There's a purposeness right, in right. that. Yeah. He says, but the problem is in that feeling of purpose, you, you, it's like an address from being itself, mm-hmm. but you can't ever find being itself. You can only find beings. Right. Yeah. And so he says, this is the, the tension because you 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 you're led to this tension where you you what keeps you from the nihilism is the sense of this being right. that you're being but yet you only see beings and the being pull feels eternal and yet all the beings are finite and contingent so you have this sense of being that only arises from the particulars right. uh, and but the and the being is more than the sum of the parts it's right. it, so he thinks that what happens is in mythology what, what, what we do is we create, as we've talked about before, you know, humans behaving badly. It's right. really things like Greek gods, right. Greco-Roman right. gods, and, and, or Sumerian gods, or what have you. He thinks, that, he thinks what that gets right is the dramatic nature of the address. Right. And the, the dualistic nature, that the, there's a tr- there's tr- they're different than us. And right. yet, it's not transcendent enough, and it's too anthropomorphic. Right. So then what philosophy does, a critical inquiry, often tries to say, no, we need to get rid of the transcendent realm or bring it down to right. a, a univocal concept of being. So even if you go in some sort of neoplatonic direction, the difference between the, the source of being the good is, is quanti- quantitative, not qualitative. Well, it's, right. it's, quanti- it's qualitative in the sense of... Omni. Omni, right. So you, you just get further up the chain. Right. So he thinks that this is the, 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 the rub, that what we need is something that he th- he really thinks the only way you can think about the divine is through uh, an, an ellipsis, a circle in, in which you're included in, in a kind of engraced reasoning. And yet it is really critical reasoning because anything what pre-modern theology did probably didn't take the otherness uh, or the sense that like that basically f- it, there's a critical dimension over and against uh, where God, the right. divine address, you know, they, they don't see that sort of, uh, necessity <laughs> or, or miraculous nature of doing this. Sometimes, it, it, this is overgeneralized, but sometimes there's a taking for granted of the revelation because you, right. you just live in a Christianized culture for so long. But he thinks, you know, th- that a kind of post Christian liberalism uh, winds up in that, in the same place, phil- philosophical skepticism uh, or even pursuit of the truth outside of a personal transcendence right. it, it leaves you where it leaves you with this kind of anthropomorphic sense of reasoning that doesn't quite get at the mystery of life. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too. There, there's a radical contingency of the child, but there's also a radical privileged position. That's one of the reasons why peekaboo is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. they only, they, they don't, you know, I mean, I think the degree of a maturity of a person is to what degree they can empathize and understand they're not the center of the world. Uh, and so you can kind of measure anybody, spouse, friend, uh, co-worker, president of the United States, by how much empathy and how much they realize that there are positions uh, that are legitimate beyond them. And I think 
that's kind of that. So there's that play again, that radical contingency, yet also this sense of part of growing, like you said, up and maturing is to surrender. I mean, you're, you're not thinking philosophically. You are, but you are thinking philosophically as a four-year-old. You wouldn't think of it. But surrendering the idea that I'm not the only person in the room. Right, right. That you learn, Yeah, you learn that you're one among many contingent realities. And yeah, you know, one of the things, I had a friend one time was having trouble with um, their son behaving at school and doing some stuff. And, um, uh, and my solution was he needs to get beat up a little bit. Now, that seems horrifying. And, and I'm not talking about bullying, but one of the things I had, I had four, I have, I have four sons, and there were certain things that you just didn't get away with. Okay. There was almost this, there was almost a sense where, you know, I could almost see the day when the youngest one, we all loved our, the youngest one. He, by the way, Peter's probably the nicest of the four of them, but he was the youngest and he ever, you know, he's the Everybody loved him. He was cute. He got a lot of attention and it was almost like some, we all realized simultaneously we might be creating a monster here. So now I'm not, I'm not condoning what the brothers did, and I found out some of it years later, or they would all still be grounded if I found out what they did. But there was a self-policing there. And so there's a sense where um, that's part of, part of merging into you know, adulthood and, and whole humanity, and also to be able to have kind of a practical working knowledge. I would argue, though, when you ask your three-year-old what they want for lunch— when you start empowering your three and four year old, you're reinforcing that idea sometimes that they are the center of the universe. And I think we've done a lot of that. And the, uh, I think we're better parents in some ways, uh, in many ways, than our previous generation. But I think we have to be careful because some well intentioned activity is just reinforcing a false worldview. Yeah, I think. As adults, we shouldn't get choices about lunch. You just eat what's in front of you. Yeah, you well, if you go to let me have in the gulag, that's what's going to be. Uh, uh, but you know. <laughs> well, let me ask this: we still have there's still lunch options here in the bunker. All right, so how let's talk. Let's move it to the faith. All right, so how do you talk about objective truth when it comes to Christian belief um, and um, and and revelation and things like that? Well, that's interesting because I think. The truth is a person, right? I mean, John's yeah. gospel is Jesus comes full of grace and truth. And I think you can't... And I am the way, the truth, and the life. You are. Bill Bohr. No, I meant some quoting. Stop <laughs> yeah, it. Like, you could Stop. be. I mean, you could be. You no, know, no I I'm th- not. So I think that on one, on one level, the truth has to condescend to us, and we, and we have to receive it. So there, right. there's we're revelation receivers and meaning makers. And so we're part of, we're involved. God gifts us with being in the interpretive process. Right. So I think that seeing that truth is personal. So like all personal encounters are, are objective and subject, right? subjective because a person has to let you in and you have to interpret their letting in. You know, right. even though they're real things they're t- sharing with you, you still have to, there's an interpretive moment and move in any interpersonal reaction. So I think it's part of w- w- what we need. I think that realizing th- the situation <laughs> that requires us to be graced to know the truth it will make us more gracious in the sense of yeah. we don't part of the problem is in the sort of alternative fact world, whether it's on the right or the left is or from pulpits or from pulpits is it becomes, it's no longer I thou it's I it because yeah. other things are sub, are subjected to your domineering of reality by right. sort of, by, by being, by constructing by making people live in the interiority of you. Right. And so it's part of the incarnation at the heart of it and the crucifixion where, where truth 
you know, becomes crucified. You know, if, if we could be taken out of falsehood. Right. Yeah. I think for Christians starting there, learning what, what it means to be people embraced by the truth, I think first of all, it means to, as you're saying, like realize that we're reality is bigger than us. Right. And that any apprehension of it is a gift and a grace. And we should, you know, in, gra- in, in gratitude, try to respond in kind. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I think maybe future episode we need to talk about revelation. It gets a whole maybe gets a whole episode itself about re- revelation and objectivity. But it, it, what you know, it strikes me as I'm thinking about what is the apologetic task. You know, you know if, it, and I don't. I, I would never call what I do apologetics. I've spent my entire adult life talking to people who don't necessarily believe in the faith for all kinds of reasons from you know, scientists and philosophers to kids, you know, in the streets. And I, you know, I've never, I've never once thought of myself trying to convince anybody anything. Uh, what I've always tried to do is to uh, give an intellectually honest approach to the faith, challenge their false notions, uh, agree when they point out a problem of Christianity. But uh, any kind of objective thing going on, my goal is always give them an opportunity to encounter the subjective one, the mystery itself. Love alone is credible, as von Bofferson says.
Picture is you at last. I stand there. 